Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. Today we have a really interesting singer-songwriter in the studio who's just released his first album, Still Feel Lucky. You might not know him by name, but he's a big talent with a big, soulful voice and a great personal story. He's an artist and very much a survivor. And it's a theme that comes up over and over in his music. We'll hear his story in a minute. But first, I'm Brad Newman, the producer of this series. And once again, I'll also be taking on the hosting chores for what should be an interesting look at this young man who's caught the attention of some of the best in his field, including Marin Morris and Jason Isbell. We're bringing this to you from our podcast studios in Midtown Manhattan. Rick Buser is our engineer. Well, as I said, our guest today just released his first album a few weeks ago, and it's been praised by The Guardian, The Ringer, and Rolling Stone Country. His dad was a singer-songwriter, and at 17, he picked up a guitar and hasn't stopped since. Please welcome Ben Danaher to the podcast. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm really good. So tell me what it was like. You grew up in a pretty small community, about 30 miles, was it east of Houston? Yeah, northeast, like, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. just just out of the way. And uh, your dad was a singer-songwriter, your your brothers were involved in music growing up. Tell Give me a sense of what life was like in the Danaher household. Yeah, uh, so my dad was, was like the truest of troubadour songwriters you know he traveled all over the country that's how we met my mom mm -hmm. and um and then they they set up in in huffman texas and um he uh you know he built a studio there at the house um to record his own music and and that led to my brothers having guitars and drums and then uh, my my oldest brother Kelly started playing the drums, and so they set that up. And then my, when Brett became like five, he was like holding the bass guitar, and my dad was like, you know, getting cheap band labor out of him playing <laughs> festivals. But um, it was it was you know it, it, was, it was fun because my you know he would rehearse or record, and there was always something going on there. The and, and so were holidays, uh, you know, would it end up being in a circle and, and playing? Would he play no, for you guys? Or it, was it more because it was a job for him? I mean, well, he would play for us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whether we wanted to hear it or not, he'd be like, hey, check this song out. But um, it, it wasn't as kumbaya as as uh, you would have thought it would have been. I think there was a big age gap between us. So it was hard for like I, I really didn't pick up the guitar until I was 17 and they were already out of the house. Yeah. But um but I got a lot of the rehearsals. Yeah. And, you know, I got to like check that out. That was fun. Give us a sense of what your dad sounded like. What was his and were you heavily influenced by that sound and that storytelling? Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. Um so he he was like um when we were growing up, he was into all of the you know, the the Jackson Browns and the um the Ray Wiley Hubbard and Guy Clark and the, oh, Guy Clark. you know like the big the troubadour singer songwriter guys and uh, and so he he kind of went all over the map he, um, 
it was some of it was uh, traditional country, some of it was a little jazzier. But um, he kind of, you know, had his own his own thing. Can I hear one of your Sh- favorite songs of his? Yeah, this is this is a, a part of one of my dad's songs. It's, uh, it's called "Too Many Honky Tonks." The neon glimmers off my glass. I know this drink won't be my last. I hear the laughter in the dark. As the bubbles disappear. From this mug of ice cold beer I drown her memory from my heart Too many honky-tonks under the bridge Burn through all my chances Says where the lonely live An analog TV Where the local fights are free Too many honky Talks under the bridge. Yeah, that's nice. I hear a little Lyle Lovett there. Yeah, a little bit. He kind of fell in that Texas swing stuff. Pretty yeah. heavy. You know? Yeah, that's nice. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going through this uh, a little bit with my mother. I think our audience does this too. She's, uh, you know, she suffered a heart attack about a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you were there. Your father got sick. He mm-hmm. he. Um, he got cancer, yeah, and you were you were there with him right at the end. Well, I was, yeah. Um, he got sick a couple years before my my brother had passed, and uh, that's that's you know watching somebody go through that is is tough. It's uh, they're not themselves, you know, when right. when you get diagnosed with cancer, and it yeah, it was it was a hard hard experience for sure. Yeah, um, I don't know if it came directly out of that, but you have a song on the new album, "My Father's Blood," mm-hmm. which is um, it, it, it's moving, and there's a lot in there. There's Thanks. you gotta tell me about that and how you yeah. how that all came together. Yeah, that you know that song was um, I, I, I for whatever it's worth, my, my family kind of like makes fun of me because I'm so much like my dad. You know, my sister is like, "Oh my God, your dad," you know. And uh, and and I was so proud of him, you know. Like I, I wanted to be him. That was my biggest hero. And like, um, not just musically, but like um, personally. You know, I watched him do a ton of great things for people. And um, when when I started to work on that song, uh, yeah, it was more of like I'm such my father's son, and I was proud of that. You know, even though he didn't have this big. Um, grand moment of like a gold record or a, a, a huge uh, song on somebody else's record that they picked up. Um, you know, I was up until the last week of his life, he was still writing songs, and that was eye-opening to me. You mm. know, to 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 see somebody with no light at the end of the tunnel still put the effort into working on a song because there's you know it it goes nowhere. You know, right? It's, it was interesting, and I thought that had a lot of integrity behind it, and so. Um, when we wrote the song, it, it started out as being just kind of like trying to be the man that that my father would have uh, would have wanted us to be, you know. And, and I have those moments. I think everybody does when you 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 go through some stuff or you you start to slip a little bit, and you just you almost feel that like that poke that your dad would push you in the chest, you know, or like yeah. that, you know, like the the lessons that you learned and they 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 live there, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that line in the song, um, sometimes I wander off, but I always come back around. I find myself looking back to him, 
for that for those moments, you know. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit. Sure. My father's blood is running through my veins, flowing from my fingertips to these guitar strings. I'd be just another melody without a song to sing. I wouldn't even know who I was without my father's blood. Well, I pray to God, not love a lot, keep these busted shoes. Here on the ground And I get lost And I wander off But I always end up Coming back around And it's all because I got my father's blood It's mm. <laughs> deep Yeah, thanks and uh, it's interesting. I want to go back to one quick point before mm-hmm. moving forward. You know, you said you were amazed and inspired and, and by your father writing right at the end because mm-hmm. those songs weren't going anywhere. But, yeah. I, you know, I think there are people, you know, this may be a little granola crunchy, that, that <laughs> sort of believe that if you put that out there... Uh-huh. It's it's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it goes where for who? I sure. Mean, but you know what? It it it's, it it was good for him, and it was good for the environment he was in to do that right to the end. I mean, that's I, I you know you talk about you've went through some perspective changes, which has led mm-hmm. to you to mm-hmm. this album, and um, I've read about, and I think. That's something to embrace, that idea. That is inspirational. Yeah. That even when everyone else would say, why are you doing that? That you still keep traveling forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially with music. That's it, You know, I, I'm in a business now where success is, is measured behind uh, who's paying for what you're doing, your art, you know? And, like, that um, to watch or to think about it that way is, like, you know, this just lives in the universe and somebody can come get it and take what they need from it and discard it or do whatever they want with it. Um, it yeah, I, I, I should look at it more that way, but it gets so hard because you're you're ambitious and you want thing you want to move to the next level, you know. Sure, isn't that interesting though, this idea that you're it is a business, you're mm-hmm. trying to do something that's going to sell, but mm-hmm. ultimately what sells is something you don't care if it sells or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's tricky. It is tricky. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. Um, You know, we talked about your brothers. You know, Brett Uh played guitar for Pat Green, Uh sat right in that chair. We had a really good time with Pat on the show. Um, But Kelly, Kelly was the drummer. Uh And um, tell me about him because he had a a big influence in your life in the business, right? I mean, he helped you kind of put things together. Yeah, so so he was 10 years older than me. And uh, when he went off to college... He was in bands, and um, and you know I came up through high school, and Brett was so busy with Pat, they were starting to like take off in Texas, and uh, that he, you know, he was, we weren't on the same level, you know, mm-hmm. like Kelly was still honky tonking, yeah. and like I could go hire Kelly to come play drums for me, 
And if there was a club owner or something that was about to like screw us over, Kelly, uh, uh-uh, you know, like this is go back in there and tell him this, you know, and it's like I'm 18 years old, like, no, sir, you know, like you owe us this much money or, you know, or we're not playing there this long or whatever it was. And, uh, I learned how to honky tonk and how to kind of cut my teeth and you know how how much to pay players and how and how to talk to a band you know like how to take a song and, and interpret it to them and get what you needed out of like that scenario. I learned a lot of that from him. So you know, obviously being ten years older, he's a little bit farther in his life. And, oh yeah. And he you know he gets married and he starts to have children. He has a three year old little girl. Yeah. And. And there's a birthday party. Listen, mm-hmm. I've got girls. I've had birthday parties. Yeah. Tell me about what made his a little different. Yeah. Um, so they, you know, they were doing karaoke on the porch, um, and it was it, it was getting late. You know, it was probably like eleven thirty midnight, and the neighbor down the street was upset about the noise, and so he had called the police to uh, to have him come out and and talk to him, and you know, it's a small town out there, and so the cops come out and. Everybody knows everybody, and they're like, "Hey, can you turn it down?" And and you know, they turn it down. And the cops left. This guy felt like maybe nothing had happened, or that you know nobody was doing anything about it. And so he walked down the street, and he starts f- filming the house from the street to prove to the police that the the noise was still too loud. And uh, for about twenty minutes, you know, he's out there and. Um, my brother's father-in-law had pulled the truck around to the other side of the property to, you know, repark and saw him and asked him what he was doing. And and he immediately got kind of combative and was like, you know, like, you guys need to turn it down. And like, everybody's like, who are you? And he's like, it doesn't matter who I am. And so my brother came walking up to see what was going on. And, and this guy pulls his gun out and says, get back or I'll shoot you. And so my brother backs out of the street and... Uh, and everybody gets on the phone with the police. Like this guy starts calling the cops, and he's saying all the buzzwords that you could say in a self-defense case, which were, you know, there's 15 of them. They're armed. Uh, they're trying to kill me. I'm in fear of my life. And, and like they didn't have any guns. No, nobody else was armed. And uh, and my brother's friends are on the co- phone with the cops, going like, this guy has a gun. He's we're at a three-year-old's birthday party, and uh, and that that kind of went on for about another seven, eight minutes. You know, you plenty of time to walk home but he was upset and still arguing about it with him and uh it, the truck that was parked in the street um pulls in so the headlights go away and and all you see are like silhouettes of people and you know i don't know what happened but maybe somebody got too close to him and he pulled the gun out and started shooting and he shot three people Jeez. Yeah. including your brother yeah my brother was the only one who passed away that's terrible yeah it was, it was a hard one it's and it's senseless. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was so pointless, you know. Yeah. But. And that really changes your life because it's it's it, coincidentally it's sort of right around sort of the time that your father passed away too, right? It's it's pretty close in well, proximity. Well, close enough. Yeah. So um, my parents were actually at the party, and oh, then my. then they went home uh-huh. for the evening, and um, they called. I guess the somebody who was at the party called my parents to tell them to come back because of what happened. And I remember I, w- I would have been there at the party, but I had taken a gig and uh, we didn't have cell service. I was down in this like valley out by the river, of, uh, the Guadalupe River in New Braunfels. And uh, I remember my phone ringing being like so like baffled at how I had service at that 
that because I didn't have it all night. And uh, it was my dad, and, he, and it was like almost a scripted, you know, sentence like, hey, this is your dad. Your brother's been shot and killed. And I was like, what? You know, like I just remember n- not processing that for a long time. And, uh, and so basically drove back home through the night to get back to Houston to see them. And, uh, yeah, it, it took about two years for that trial to, to come. And that, um, and that trial was a stand your ground. It was one of the first yes. stand your ground cases. And mm-hmm. he, they were using that as a defense for him. But ultimately, mm-hmm. y- y- the family, your family kind of prevailed. Right. And he, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he went to jail. Yeah. It, it was um, it was an interesting time. Yeah. Because you're in Texas and the gun laws are everybody loves guns there. And like. Um, it was parallel a little bit to the Trayvon Martin situation. And so every news outlet was covering it, you know, like I remember I was going on a date with a girl and I was like, I gotta go home cause we're going to be on 2020. And it was like, oh, what? And, uh, but you know, like it took two years for that trial cause Houston is, is huge. And, um, and once the trial came, I remember that, that week before the trial started, my dad passed away. He would, that was when he mm. had gotten too bad. And, uh, and I stayed home because it was like the trial was going to start and I had to be down there. And so it was another two months. And he ended up getting a 40-year sentence after that, that trial. And then he appealed because the judge didn't provide the proper verbiage to the jury on what self-defense was. And so they retrialed, retried him, and uh, he ended up getting a life sentence a second time. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but you... You you moved to Nashville after that, mm-hmm. and you begin this singer songwriter journey, and mm-hmm. it, you know, from tragedy, you really you you really became a survivor. It, yeah. it really influenced your music. You you have a song over that mountain, mm-hmm. which is a, a, an emotional sure. song. Can can you tell us about that and and how it relates to the the tragedy and give us a taste? Yeah, um, yeah, that song was. Um I wrote it with my friend Chris Galbuta, and it was it was kind of our take on um, what the view looks like after you you lose somebody that you love and and that you want to see them again. You know, it's like how time passes and how you know it's it's open to interpretation because that that kind of stuff always is. But it's uh, yeah, it was it was very much like what what I believed at the time. Um, and I was really into gospel music. You know, I was like listening to a lot of Buddy Miller and um, stuff like that. And so it kind of fell in that vein. Um, I'll just do a verse and chorus. Over that mountain There is a place The clouds are just memories The sun shines all day I know I'll get there I just don't know when But over that mountain I will see you again. Yeah. 
You know, Nashville is a is a tough little town uh-huh. if you want to go and pursue your dreams. Um, you know, Texas is known as, uh, you know, such this big state, you mm-hmm. know, but it, it's got a little sweet spot in it, too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people can just live there and play music and do their thing their whole life. And, mm-hmm. um, and there's some amazing musicians that come out of there. Um, I know we talked a lot when Pat Green was there, the, the, this idea that, that Texas, you know, musicians sort of get pigeonholed. It's, it's such a shame. Um, you know, unfortunately, to my novice ears, I, I can't hear it. I could hear uh, the Lyle Lovett in your, yeah, in your yeah, dad's yeah. song, sure. but I, I wouldn't peg you as, uh, as an artist from Texas at all. Well, th- thank you for, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with it, but no. sometimes by proximity, you get lumped in it, you know, and, right. and I, I know that's been Pat's struggle sometimes, and, and there's been other artists from Texas who, who do really well down there, but uh, for whatever reason, once you get kind of seen as that, it's, it's not, you know, it doesn't translate everywhere. Right. Um, but yeah. But you, um, you end up going to Nashville and you start bartending at third and Lindsley, which, uh-huh. you know, I've taken my girls there. Oh, I just want to say that. Yeah. 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 We went on a little trip down there. Did you see? <laughs> um, uh, we saw, boy, you, you asked me too quick, and I was thinking of that, and I didn't prepare for that. But That's we right. saw what, it was funny, because we saw what we thought was going to be an Americana uh-huh. band. And they were just so eclectic. They uh-huh. had so much more to them. And, and it just reminded me, I told the girls, you know, this is what happens yeah. in America. We like to pigeonhole people and put them right in a little box. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's some of that. Mm-hmm. And then you go and watch them, and there's so much more going on. Yeah, you know, yeah, they've yeah. got a little ska going on. Yeah, they've got yeah. a little rock and roll. They've got, they, they do have their Americana thing. Yeah. And these guys were just really so talented. And uh, maybe I'll plug that in when I go back because I have to talk to my daughter but she became a big fan but you know we i said to him i said guys we're we're going early yeah and we sat right up in the front cool. and, and we're really excited yeah. and there we are in the, one of those front little hi-hat tables uh-huh. you know and the the first artist comes on and started blowing us away and we could only move back to the oh, venue really like, um, almost to the door and then wow. we, we had to move upstairs and then like to the one of the back tables is yeah. the only way we could stomach wow. it i said to him i said thank god your mother's not here with us because <laughs> We would be leaving. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but it's an amazing venue for people, uh-huh. you know, that want to visit Nashville. And there's a lot of really established artists and up and coming. So you're a bartender there. Uh-huh. And it was frustrating to watch people that you knew were, you know, you were good enough. You were better sure. than some of them. I mean, your voice is so, you've got a great storyteller. Oh, so you. you end up going up and, and taking a little respite from all this and visiting your grandma. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't so much uh, the bar grind as it was just Nashville in general. You know, it was like I was taking a lot of publisher meetings and and you you, you got a handful of really sad songs that you take in and they appreciate them, but they, they don't find a home for them. You right. know, like with country radio, it's pretty regimented into um, a formula these days. And if it doesn't go into that formula, then you, you're almost like just getting lucky if you get a cut, you know. And um, and so I needed a second away from that. And I was going to – I had co-written so much that I was – I felt like I, we were just fabricating stories. Like right. I, wasn't, I wasn't telling a story that I was going to stand behind anymore. But I'd written so much that I felt like I got to become a better like songwriter at like the craft of songwriting, and so I wanted some time away from it to go um, find a new voice and, and say something new. And uh, 
and I, you know, it was a very self, like self-driven move for me to go to Vermont. I was like, I'm, I got a free place to stay with my grandmother, you know. And I got, I got so much more out of it than I, than I thought I was gonna get. You know, you get up there with a 94-year-old roommate for a summer, and your things just change, man. It's like, I was, I, I had like accepted so much sympathy from. Um, this situation with my brother and my dad that it, it kind of become an identity, you know, and mm-hmm. like and I was leaning so hard on it that like I expected it, you know, it was like and then we talked about this right before we started the interview. It's like the story gets pitched first because that's whatever the people that are working for you's job is. But it 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 comes weird because you're like you take so much like stock in that, like uh, or it, you place so much value on it, you know, like it's, it is a thing that happened to me. But you don't want it to define you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was talking to my therapist about this. She's like, you know, whatever happens, like music is so subjective that if somebody doesn't like your music, then you're taking it as like a personal like knock at your story or your history because this so much of you is in this. And, right. and it's it's a weird thing to navigate, you know. But like um but anyways, I was I was I was leaning so hard on that on that sympathy that like I, I think I just let it kind of like guide me, which was not not a great uh, compass, you know, right. and um, when I got to Vermont, my grandmother, you know, uh, we just we would wake up every morning and like have coffee and talk, and and she would talk about how lucky she was every day, you know, and this is a lady who served in World War II and and had basically all of her friends had passed away, her husband was gone, like er- you talk about death, like everybody around her is gone, and like it's just like totally content and like the eye-opening moment for me was that like life does move on and this happens to a lot of people and not that 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 diminishes anything that's happened in my story but you know there's there's a, a time to to kind of like put your feet forward and start looking for happier things and that led me to that the next moment you know and that next moment really was the catalyst behind this 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 album and yeah the, the title song still feel lucky and and that was that came right out of that experience let's let's hear a little bit of yeah. of that tough as nails hard as concrete mean as hell if i have to be I can drop a tear Fall to my knees You can have the strongest skin It's still gonna bleed But you can hurt And just stop moving You can break Until you're tired of losing Turn out so much better than you ever thought you'd be You can hurt and still feel lucky Nice. Thanks. It's got a great message to it. Yeah, I think we got lucky on that. Not to, like, hit the pun, but, like, we we were just writing a song about gutting it out, you know, and, like, uh, that line came out of one of our mouths, and we both kind of stopped, and we're like, "That." We didn't know what, it, what to do with it at the time, but it was interesting enough to be like, 
I think we're gonna like follow that thread, you know. And uh, and the record didn't have something that of that tempo, so it just fell right into place while we were recording. <laughs> There's a lot of great songs in this new album. Still Thank feel you. lucky. Um, and and what I thought was really interesting is it, there really is a development of this album as you listen from the first song to the last. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you, you guys, this is well thought. It's really well put together. Um, there's some great stories, some great storytelling. You know, another song that I really liked was Silver Lining, which mm-hmm. I think does kind of go with looking at the positive yeah. of of things and bad things come your way. You know, yeah, yeah. you can always look at it two different ways. Sure. Um, can we hear a little bit yeah. of, of that? Yeah, that one, that was an interesting co-write. That was with uh, Kristen Riley. Um, and she, you know, we talked for like two hours before we wrote that song. And wrote the song in like 15 minutes. It was like, it was a weird, the weirdest moment, you know? Like we, and it was like the most intense conversation ever. Like we just, we started talking about where we had been and what we'd done in our lives. And like, I don't know, um, after all of that, like, and that was our first time to meet. Like we had met like that morning and, uh, and ended up writing this. I think it was more of like about finding that person you want to lean on in the hardest hardest times you know um because it, it, it we covered all that ground it was like well wouldn't it be nice to have this this person you know mm-hmm. um so this is a uh... be my silver lining the whole world fades to dark be the only light that guides me and I can't find a spark Be my golden compass The only hand that I can trust When the storm rolls through You stay true Never turn to rest There is a. It's interesting. I've I've been always one of these television producers that yeah. uh, I you know even in happy moments like in a piece or something I tend to go to something a little sadder yeah. because there's something that can still make you feel happy in a yeah. sad yeah. song. Yeah. And totally. It, yeah. It's a strange thing to go, try to describe I, with somebody. I go running to um, sad songs a lot of the time, which is weird because like most people need like 120 beats a minute for them to like get motivated. But for me, it's like I'm so into the songwriting aspect of it that like I get pumped up if I hear somebody construct like a really great line. I'll listen to John Moreland or something, and it's like dark, but it's <laughs> he- and and, and, it, and a lot of times this is my only time I can really tune out and listen to a whole album. But like, um, but yeah, there, there's a vibe for sure in sad music. I think that that brings joy to you. You know. Well, you have to kind of hit on a truth, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. It, it really. It, it has to hit that emotion uh-huh. in, in a sense of authenticity. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you really do tune out. It doesn't touch you. Yeah, I was just talking to my cousin about that in, in the craft of songwriting in general. It's like you, we work so hard that, you know, like some of the the work that you have, like songs that you've, you've, you know, you've worked on over and over and over again, don't hold a candle to the ones that you just walk up and you hit the chord and it comes out. And it's it, there's something to be said for... 
um, this language that you speak, mm-hmm. you know, and like the, um, it's, it's the most honest way to connect with somebody. And, and a lot of times you discard it because you don't think you, you worked on anything and you don't think you tried. So, but it's the easiest way to connect with somebody because you, you just not, uh, I guess what's the word? Like you, you didn't try and it, it, you painted the picture. Do you, do you think, and, and I just know this for, for what I do, that you can still have, it's productive to have those, to learn the technique, though, mm-hmm. and to have those songs that you write that you know aren't going to go anywhere when you mm-hmm. learn how to really write a song, mm-hmm. because they help you win that eureka strikes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where are you going to put all that emotion, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I know how to turn this. Yeah, I yeah. know how to lead this into a bridge. Totally. Yeah. I know how we're going to come out of that. But if you never had those hours where you were writing those songs that weren't going to go anywhere, yeah. you wouldn't be able to do that. It's I 1,000% believe it's a muscle that you have to train, you know? And, like, and it's, it's a, there's a songwriter in Nashville I look up to named Alan Shamblin, and his analogy is that it's like a to surfing, you know? You're not going to catch a wave standing on the beach. You have to go out every day and get on the board get out there and allow yourself to be open to creativity to hit you. But yeah, it's, you know, it, it's like a, like you're training yourself to think a certain way. And then when you, and co-writing is like that too, you know, like they're always awkward, but you do enough of them to where you, you don't deal with your own insecurity anymore on it. It's like you've rehearsed and all you got to do is execute with whoever you're there with, you know? And there has to be a sense of trust that must happen in those rooms. I mean, I've heard so much mm-hmm. about these co-writing through this experience, mm-hmm. this journey on this podcast. Uh, there must be a sense of like what happens in this room stays in this room. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, trust that. You know, like uh, yeah, th- there's a lot of vulnerability in it. You know, like if you really want to write something that that means something to everybody, right? Um, you can go in and write summer smash and it doesn't take much uh much thought you know or like much uh, like gut to do that but like i i really love getting into it you know like if and, and it was weird a lot of times on some of those co-writes i just met these people and i'm like so this is what happened my brother's at a birthday party and they're like oh god you know and oh. it's like it's like the the awkwardness in the room um but it took me a while to kind of figure out what what was appropriate for that and what was not and how to pick and choose those battles you you've written some some songs with some pretty big names you mean you've been in the room with Marin Morris and I mean is it intimidating I've heard you know Angelina Presley was on the the show and, oh, and she she um yeah. she have you she's yeah. she's great so she was telling us about the time she wrote with Guy Clark oh god yeah <laughs> and he, I guess he could be really intimidating yeah and he would say okay say play something for me see yeah. what you got you know, and it, it, sometimes it didn't go too well for people. Yeah. You know, I play for something. It's like, really? Play something else. Oh, and yeah. it went well uh, for her. Um, well, you know, Wake Up Little Darling, I think, yeah. is something they wrote together. And it's that's a beautiful song. It was just in my head this morning. Yeah. So it's interesting that, that we I've, bring this up. I've heard stories of Guy. You know, like I, I know about 20 people that have written with Guy. And uh, and one of my favorite stories is this guy comes in and he He's like, hey, guy, I got this idea. It's blah, blah, blah. And he goes, hmm. He leans back and he grabs a cassette tape off the wall behind him. He goes, I got one of those. <laughs> 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 but um, I, funny you say that about Angelina. I, Jordan, her husband, is a great friend of mine. And right at the end of Guy's life, he was like, 
hey, guys at the hotel, at the hospital, do you want to come by and play some songs for him? And I was like, yeah. And so we showed up and um, pulled the guitars out and played songs for Guy Clark, and it was like, it was surreal. He was so sweet. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been pretty lucky on the co-writing end. Um, it Intimidating sometimes, you know. Um, Marin, Marin was like, this was pre her success. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we kind of had mutual friends in Texas and I mean, she's great. Don't get me wrong. Like she's always been amazing, but, um, we wrote like seven songs and like, and really I thought we hit it off. Like, um, we clicked well writing together and then she just, man, she, she worked it and like got into the system and like blew up and it was exciting to watch that happen because everybody, I've never seen something that big happen in front of me. And yeah. it, was, it was cool. Travis Meadows was another good one. He's a great songwriter. Yeah. Um, you know, Marin, the song you wrote with her was Hell or High Water, which uh-huh. is the first track on this album. Um, I'll let the people tune in to listen to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one of the, the, the way I would like to end this today, and I think it's appropriate with, with where we've been going, it was, I, I think it's probably my favorite song on the album is Jesus Can See You. Yeah. Tell me about that, and, sure. and let's go out with that song. Yeah, so, you know, um, during that period of time when uh, I just moved to Nashville, I started dating this girl, and um, she was really religious, and um, that that's cool until you're, like, you're not meeting up to the standards of, of that, you know? Right. And um, when we broke up, there were just some things that contradicted what she was saying, you know, or <laughs> preaching, right. and... Um, and I, I got together with two, with my buddies Drew Kennedy and Josh Greider, who helped me write the song. And I, I was like, obviously, really bummed about the deal. And I was like, you know, I want to write this song called "Jesus Can See You Breaking My Heart." And they just like <laughs> laughed. They were like, okay, cool, like really dramatic, Ben. And uh, and so um, they came over, and there was a, there was a particular situation with the second verse where um, this guy Alan Shamblin, uh, songwriter in Nashville, had invited me to this like really like cool songwriting hang and I got to my van and went to start it and the and the engine clicked and it didn't it wouldn't start and so I was like bummed out about not being able to go and I sent her a text we had already broken up and she was kind of like giving me the uh we can't talk anymore and I'm like okay cool and uh, and she, I said I'm really bummed I can't go to this thing and she said God is sovereign and I was like, what is that supposed to mean? You know, and like it blew Drew's doors off. He was like, that is the most unchristian thing you could say. <laughs> and so um, so it was pretty fired up on that one. But um, but yeah, we ended up getting a song we loved. And then we didn't think it would see the light of day. And then both of us recorded it. And it became a, a single for me. And the radio played it, which is funny. got faith I'm all wide carved in a stone nothing left to decide across all your neck it proves that you pray well me I'm still searching for the truth that you found the thing you're convinced that I can't live without But I'm the only one who's down on my knees today 
Jesus be with you and bless you and keep you judge and be judged isn't that what it was that you told me alone in the dark Jesus can see you breaking my heart Ben Danaher <laughs> Still Feel Lucky is the album. Um, Got to check it out, everybody. Ben, it was really great to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Before we let you go, we want to welcome you to the B-Side. Here's a chance for us to break out of the box and tell one last story. Earlier in this episode, we found out Ben's first job in Nashville was actually bartending at 3rd and Lindsley. Yes, the same famous music haunt that I took my two girls last year. Oh, and that amazing band we saw that night was the Portland, Oregon-based folk band Fruition. Yes, they're billed as a folk bluegrass band. But do yourself a favor and catch them as they tour across the country. With a big sound and an even bigger playlist, there's so much more than advertise. But 3rd and Lindsley is a magical place in its own right, with interesting characters around every corner. Fertile ground for a young singer-songwriter. So once again, here's Ben Danaher talking about how he found inspiration writing about two of the bar's most colorful regulars. You know, another song I liked was actually Fred and Jonelle. Oh, Fred and Jonelle. Yeah, I could tell a story about that. That's, um, yeah, so when I, when I moved to Nashville, I started bartending at 3rd and Lindsley, and I met Fred because he would come in um, to see Jonelle Mosser, who was a great blues singer that would play there. And Fred, um, he he served in Vietnam, and um, he gets misunderstood a lot. I think people think he's hammered all the time, but he just has like like kind of a speech issue. And... Um, and he would heckle everybody that would play. Like these kids from Belmont would be playing, opening for somebody, and he would just shout out, you know, I guess I'll let anybody play at Third and Lindsley. And, then, <laughs> and the, the first time I played there, I walked by by Fred afterwards, and he goes, well, Ben, at least you tried. And I was like, dang, man, like this is going to be insane. And um, and so Jonelle, you know, or Fred would give all the girls that worked there a $20 bill. His family was getting money because they had – mineral rights in North Dakota and like they were drilling on his land so he got these monthly checks and he got the VA checks and he would just come in and just give his money away to everybody and I, he would he would always have like a 20 for every girl that worked there and I would never get one it was always like sorry we didn't have enough money you know and I'm like okay whatever and uh, and I didn't need it it was like thank you and uh, and so when I got to Vermont that summer I was out out in the front yard my grandmother had like a 14 yard truck of topsoil delivered to go resod her lawn and I'm out there shoveling dirt and like and uh, thinking about songs and I thought about like how Fred loved Jonelle and like that most you know most married couples didn't have that kind of like pure gleam in their eye and um, and so I, I ran to the basement and wrote it down really quick and um recorded it in my phone and I sent it to the bartender and she was like Fred's gonna flip out when he hears this you know and I was like oh good good you know and I got back to, to Nashville and I played a gig there and Fred heard it 
And every time I go in there now, I get a $20 bill. It's like, <laughs> it's like it won him over. It's like yeah, his, that's it. Yeah, he, I think he bought like 10, 10 copies of the record. Awesome. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. From the back of the bar room Just watching the band It had just about all of The first act That he could stand She was asking for white wine The last serve will She said it's nice to meet you My name's Jonel It's a one hand a million Untouchable feeling Nobody else can explain for the rest of your lifetime You'd be lucky if you find Someone time can erase If you need a reminder A love story to tell Just watching the odds get brighter Fred looks at Jonel. Mm, that's so sweet. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. Thank really you. appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.